Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Looking into the history of today's drink prompted something I've been thinking about a lot since, how so many historic cocktails might get mistakenly attributed to just a handful of authors whose books have stood the test of time and served as references since the cocktail renaissance. Harry Craddock is a prime example, and no shade thrown against the author of the legendary Savoy cocktail book. But without additional references, it's impossible for us to know how many cocktails in the book are Craddock creations, how many were invented by others at the Savoy Hotel's American bar, and how many were simply drinks known at the time that Harry just happened to be the first one to cover. He's not taking credit for them, but he's generally not giving it either. Hmm, food for thought. But luckily, that isn't the case for today's cocktail, the Hanky Panky. Because we do know definitively who came up with it and have as good an idea as we can hope for over a century on about the circumstances surrounding its creation. That little teaser is all I'm going to say about this stirred mix of gin, sweet vermouth and fernet as we instead turn our attention to today's guest, Hectoras Benicos. A New York-based longtime industry pro, Hectoras is the co-owner of Sugar Monk in Harlem and the upcoming Bitter Monk at Brooklyn's Industry City. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Hectoras places a lot of focus on those two elements, bitters and sugar, which makes him an ideal companion with which to explore our wonderful topic today. It's Hocus Pocus, Hanky Panky, and Harry Craddock. Actually, scratch that. It's Ada Coley Coleman. And you know exactly where it's going down, listener. It's right here on the Cocktail College Podcast. We're in the Cocktail College studio on a rainy gray, I think it's rainy, uh, Wednesday afternoon today here as we're recording and we are thrilled to welcome Hectoras Benicos. Hectoras. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me. Thank I'm you so much for to, joining uh, us. Pleasure. And, you know, it's interesting. We're, we're, we've passed the 100 episode milestone already here at Cocktail College. And sometimes when we're, you know, speaking with potential guests beforehand and we're looking at what drinks we might discover... A lot of the time, guests are like, ah, it's a shame, you know, I wanted to do this one or that one you've already covered. All of which is a long way of saying, I'm surprised we've gotten this far and not covered the hanky-panky already, because this is a pretty iconic cocktail. It's got a lot of history, but it's also one of those ones that I feel like in the past 10 or 20 years, bartenders really have re-embraced as well. Is that something that you feel like too? Totally, indeed, yes. It is uh, an iconic cocktail, and it's an important cocktail uh, for various reasons. It's perfect as it is, but also it was created by an amazing uh, female bartender. So that makes it extra special because I think she was the second female bartender of that caliber, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, working at the American uh, bar at the Savoy Hotel in London mm -hmm. in early 20s. Yeah, and I think that's it's really interesting as well. I love it when we get drinks where we're able to do a pretty good deep dive on the history, and this mm -hmm. is definitely one of them. Uh, you mentioned that there, and I think there's something, yeah, we definitely will be talking about in terms of female bartending that era uh, and this drink specifically. Before we get into those, though, 
for those maybe listening today who they know the name, they're maybe not familiar with the, the ingredients or they've never heard of the Hanky Banky at all, can you give us the short elevator pitch for this drink? What is it? What does it contain? Of course, yes. It's a very simple cocktail. Only three ingredients. Gin, vermouth, sweet vermouth, and a few doses of Fernet Branca, or maybe a little teaspoon of Fernet Branca. So equal parts gin and vermouth, and then uh, you top it with the Fernet Branca, and you uh, stir it on a stirring glass, mixing glass, and you serve it, uh, you know, you put it on a, on a coupe, mm-hmm. a chill coupe, with an orange twist, preferably. So we're talking like a kind of almost a gin-Manhattan hybrid here. Sure. It's perhaps, it's very close to Martinez, which actually it was before the hanky-panky. That uh, course also for sugar, mouth and gin, and a little bit of Luxardo, Maraschino, and some Angostura bitters. So it's a kind of a mutation, sort of a reef, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But the Fernet Barranca really makes the cocktail. That's the thing, yeah. And spin it in a different direction, you know, entirely, mm-hmm. and totally. So that's basically it. Stirred, boozy drink, Exactly. Speed forward, boozy, perfect, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, if you love Negronis, if you like any of those uh, Manhattans, I mean, it's, it's just up there. It's a masterpiece, really. Mm-hmm. For me. Fantastic. Yeah. Now let's dive back into that history because you, mm-hmm. you you know you mentioned um, you know this this is a um, female bartender created. Uh, of course, obviously, we don't want to be so reductive as to just you know looking at things through the lens of of, of gender or whatnot. But mm-hmm. I believe what Ada Coley Coleman. What can you tell us about the the era and the backstory of this drink uh, and her? kind of standing there at the time and her importance there. Sure, absolutely. So other Coleman or Collie, um, she was, as I mentioned, I think the second female bartender that became the head bartender of a very important bar, the American bar in London. And uh, it is essentially the golden era of cocktails. It's before prohibition, it's the early 20s. The world's already starting to realize, uh, you know, how fun it is to drink a well-made cocktail in a beautiful bar. So there is a lot of excitement. So she started working there in 1903, and she finished her run in uh, 20 years after, essentially. And uh, she was entertaining a lot of important people at the bar, from the Prince of Wales to Mark Twain to uh, the Crown Prince of Sweden uh, hmm. and a lot of other very important you know, um, personalities of the era. So among them was this gentleman, this actor, that he was a well-known actor um, that he was visiting uh, the bar often. He was sort of the barfly of, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. Coley. His name is Charles St. Charles Hotry. And um, he was performing at a theater nearby. Uh, I think he was performing also a lot of operettas, you know, um, of the era. And uh, he ran to the bar after the show, and uh, he was exhausted. And he said to, um, you know, Coley or Ada, you know, I'm exhausted. Can you make me something, you know, with a punch? And uh, she said, yes, of course. So she made the hunky-punky, and uh, apparently he was so excited, and he felt immediately I had to, you know, make remarks is my job. This is the real hunky punky. Mm-hmm. It's like punchy and strong and that will revive me, you know, mm-hmm. sort of, you know. So the name stuck, you know. It's a great story. I mean it's a great story. Mm-hmm. Um and apparently um he was uh, as I said very good uh, 
with uh, collaborator in some way, so at least critic of your cocktails and your recipes because you go often and he will, uh, you know, uh, taste a lot of new concoctions and he will give his feedback. So, mm-hmm. so they have a really nice relationship and, you know, productive relationship to some degree. Yeah. <laughs> Something <laughs> so, of an early, like, cocktail influencer exactly, he was. Yeah. Exactly, you know. Spreading the word. Indeed. I think so. it's interesting as well that, you know, you mentioned she's the second, um, you know, kind of lead female bartender mm-hmm. in the American bar in the Savoy there. Yeah. Um, I think I was reading in the Oxford Companion as well that mm-hmm. this is the first canonical cocktail or, or cocktail that considered a classic that we know for sure to have been created by a female bartender as well. Mm-hmm. One thing I found interesting in that too is that who takes her job or, or according to the Oxford Companion, perhaps yes. pushes her out, yes. is Harry Credit. Exactly, exactly. Very famous personality and mm-hmm. amazing bartender and also Author of the writer. Savoy cocktail yes. book. It's one of my favorite cocktail books. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in, it's still so relevant today. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there are different theories about what happened. Uh, you know, apparently she retired, mm-hmm. but, you know, we don't really know the details per se. Yeah. Yeah. I think another thing about that that's interesting too that might be mentioned in that text as well is that he releases the Savoy cocktail book in 1930. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe uh, nine or 10 years maybe after this drink is is invented. Right. And she's been working there. Coley's been working there for a long time. It's not outside the realms of possibility that a lot of the cocktails that are mentioned in that book might have been her creations too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We don't know. We don't yeah, we know don't that know. we have the we don't have the the famous actor of the time, That's you know, right. to tell everyone <laughs> about all of her creations, but I'm sure more than just this that are in that book are probably hers as well. It's very possible. It's very possible. That's a good point that you mentioned. Yes, we do have uh, the documentation about the making of Hanky Panky because of this famous actor, but then what about the other characters? What great. about the other ones? Yeah, And apparently she was a very creative uh, force, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, yeah, a good question. You know? I think another thing that's interesting as well that, you know, Hanky Panky these days we we see it kind of as a as, as a euphemism for uh, for intimate relations. Sure. But yeah. Apparently back then we're talking more. It was more tied to magic and like an alternative of saying hocus pocus, right? Rather than having that connotation. And, so. and it's interesting that he used that expression because he was exactly performing operators like you know uh, um, Sullivan and uh, I forgot the fact you know the two, two Gilbert two, and Sullivan. Gilbert and Sullivan, exactly. Mm-hmm. You are the hope, focus, and you know that sort of thing. You see a lot of those references. So it's possible he used that expression coming from that background. You know. Yeah. 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 I think what do you, I think? Yes. He, he's quoted as saying, "It's the real hanky panky," which is kind of a cool phrase, right? Like, yeah, if, if totally. Something you like. Very cool phrase. Today, I mean, a lot of people they don't know the history of the cocktail. Obviously, they perceive it as wow, yeah. nutty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the youngsters. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. Yes. So is there anything else about the history of this drink that you want to cover? Or can we maybe fast forward to more recent times where we would have had a lot of bartenders and influential bars in New York and people in the industry looking at the Savoy cocktail book, looking at history, rediscovering drinks, and some of them really taking off, right? Like we see, you know, The Last Word or, you know, the Alaska we had on recently, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what about the Hanky Panky in 2023? Where does this stand as a cocktail in the industry and how did we kind of refine it? Are you, are you familiar with that at all? Well, I think it's cutting up in the world. Um, I think it's becoming quite uh, um, known now among, you know, 
tap bars uh, that they play with uh, classic recipes. And um, I think it's a big reference. It's a big reference for a lot of, uh, you know, mixologists, bartenders that, uh, you know, they look in the classics. You know, we have it on Mondays at Sugar Monk. We do have, um, every Monday, uh, we uh, have a menu that is uh, classic cocktails, you know, pre-prohibition, prohibition, and we do have live jazz. And, uh, you know, we also, uh, we basically tell you a bit about the history of every cocktail to educate a little bit the people there. And, uh, you know, people love it. And, uh, of course, we do have a kind of a, Reef on the hanky panky at Sugarmank on Mondays, you know. So, what does your version look like? Because earlier you mentioned the kind of gin, sweet vermouth, and fernet being the classic. Sure, yeah. Well, you know, uh, being a kind of uh, pre prohibition and prohibition sort of uh, era menu, we have a lot of it's very heavy in gin, you know, because that was the, uh, you know, the spirit of the choice of the day, you know. So we decided to kind of twist the hanky-panky and uh, use Genevieve instead, which is the Piancis Road Gin, essentially, right? But brings completely different notes into uh, into the drink. You know, maltiness, we use a uh, young Genevieve, unaged. Unaged? Old Duffs, yeah. Ooh. And, uh, you know, it's rye and uh, barley. So brings completely different notes. So you get this uh, maltiness, this creaminess, and... Uh, I'm a proponent for the classic uh, hanky-panky to use a vermouth that is hibiscus, like, you know, like because you need crispiness and you need clarity. And I find that, uh, you know, martini and rossi vermouth, it's it's very good, uh, you know, pairing for mm-hmm. the classic hanky-panky or cocky, uh, you know, vermouth di Torino, even Dolan. So, but in this case, it didn't work. So we switched to uh, Antica Formula, so that brings some kind of uh, vanilla and caramel notes into the cocktail and kind of blends really nicely with the uh, Genevieve. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we continue with, uh, you know, the few dashes or the little teaspoon of uh, Fernet. And it's uh, lovely. It's really lovely. And, you know, another addition, we use uh, some of our orange beaters that also they're a little spicy because you, we use uh, chili, mm-hmm. chilies. Then also they take it to kind of a different direction as well in the end. You know, you get that little heat in the end and it's kind of nice, mm-hmm. you know. Nice. So that's our version. Uh, and it's been very, very popular. People love uh, the, you know, Genevieve version as well. It's also, you know, we just spoke about the history, but like you said, you know, your intention there to to provide kind of prohibition or pre-prohibition era drinks, but also the backgrounds with them. Mm-hmm. It helps when we do have some record of it, right? So this, is, this seems like a great candidate for that. Totally, yes, yes, indeed. So we mentioned all that, you mm-hmm. know, that we just spoke about uh, other, you know, on the little... Buy of the cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> and it seems like if we're going to explore now the ingredients, okay, mm-hmm. so, you know, mm-hmm. you mentioned that you've opted to go in the Geneva route. Yeah. Um, it does stand to reason, I think, actually, let's do sweet vermouth before we do gin. Typically, we go with the spirit first, but I want to do the sweet vermouth now because you mentioned something that's interesting. Yes. That I imagine... Antica formula might be too much yes, for gin in too this heavy. case. Too it's heavy. Too heavy, yes. It works very well with, uh, you know, whiskey, with other, you know, brown, uh, you know, rum and all that. Uh, makes a great Manhattan for a lot of people. But uh, for this particular gin, I think it's not really a good candidate. Yeah. Um, you know, the classic hanky-panky. So mm-hmm. I think you really need uh, kind of a more angular, uh, you know, crispier sort of vermouth. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, those two that I mentioned before, I think they bring wonderful, um, you know, really balance the, uh, you know, the entire cocktail because then you have the Fernet on top of it. So that has to come through to some degree because you use very little. So you need uh, a kind of a crisp base and then you get the finish with the Fernet provides, which is absolutely wonderful. You yeah. know, you get the uh, saffron and the mint, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So, so you definitely you're opting for one of those two Italian totally. ones. You're yes. going Martini Rossi or Cookie. Cookie, yes, yeah, yeah, Vermouth definitely, is yes. You know, those subtleties are so important for all of those classic cocktails because you know they're very simple cocktails, like two, three ingredients, four ingredients sometimes. So it's important to use the correct or the right ingredients that they blend well with the, in its chemistry. Totally, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. So, and uh, we've been doing a lot of experiments at Sugama all the time. And, uh, you know, I think it makes a difference for mm-hmm. me anyway, you know. And I like to see something that seemingly it's, you know, the best version of it, mm-hmm. if it's possible, you know. It seems to me like occasionally, and this has probably happened in tandem with the popularity of Antica Formula, mm-hmm. but it seems to me that some bartenders occasionally will look down on Martini and Rossi and be like, mm-hmm. it's all we've got. You're like, oh, yes. I can only get my hands on Martini and Rossi. Is that a little bit unfair on it is Martini unfair. and Rossi? It's totally unfair. And uh, there's a big spectrum out there. And, you know, nothing, and Antica Formula is a wonderful remove. I love it. But, you know, for certain things, you know. And uh, there's a place for everything. And I think there's a purpose for everything, a reason that you use certain products instead of some other products, you know. Mm-hmm. And Martini Rossi has also a long history. It's been, you know, uh, they've been making that vermouth for years and years and years, and it's very well made, I think. Yeah. Uh, there is a little bit of uh, a resurgence now. I mean, the people uh, pay more respect to it, you know, uh, which is great to see, you know. I grew up with that, you know, in, in Greece. I grew up in Greece, and my parents do have a Martini Rossi, you know, mm-hmm. in the afternoon. It's so iconic. It's so iconic. Totally, yeah. And also, so, I think... In every cocktail, you're looking for balance, right? But And especially one where your two main ingredients here are 50-50. Right. But inherently, one ingredient has to accommodate the other, right? Totally. So are you basing your gin decision around the sweet vermouth, or are you choosing a sweet vermouth that will allow maybe the gin just to shine a little bit more in that marriage to work, right? Like, Absolutely. who's louder? No, absolutely. And speaking of gin, the gin also is an important component. What kind of gin are you going to use? You don't want to use a Plymouth or you don't use a floral gin. I think the best it, choice is a, it's a London Dry, like Heyman's, a classic London mm-hmm. Dry, uh, for example. You know, you really need to keep it clean and crisp and elegant. And, you know, it's really, uh, you don't need anything additional, any, you know, things that are kind of spin in a different direction. Yeah. And it's perfect as it is. Precisely because the Fern Branca has such a strong personality, so you want to create a base that is correct and beautiful, but also, you know, mm-hmm. the addition of, 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 of Fernet really takes it to the perfect kind yeah. of uh, outcome. You know? So you're saying for gin, mm-hmm. London Dry, yes. Heyman's is one you Absolutely, like. Absolutely, yes. Is that what you have on your well? This or? is what I have on my well. It's mm-hmm. my, you know, I love that, uh, you know, uh, gin is so, uh, you know, eight ingredients, nothing crazy. But again, it's balance. It's just perfect for mm-hmm. what it is, you know. What does that come in at ABV-wise? It's not one that I regularly reach for. It's a decision that I've enjoyed. Well, it comes but... in different expressions. You have the, uh, you know, na- Navy, which is high, and then you have the 40%, which is regular, you know. Okay. 
And I think they also make old times as well. Ah, nice. Yeah. The, the classic trio yes. there. And for a while, the kind of like, yeah, the classic trio. And now they just came out with a new thing, which after so many years, uh, kind of orange flavor, you know, to compete with Tanqueray thing in some ways, you know. Interesting. You know. Ah, yeah, because yes. it's yes. interesting. Tanqueray had so, their rancor, I exactly, think. Exactly, yeah. And uh, so they, uh, that's interesting. I, you know, mm -hmm. I, it's very good actually too, but, you mm -hmm. know, we stuck with the classic for now, eventually we may expand. As a bar operator, mm -hmm. how do you feel about that, you know, expanding selection of these gins just in terms of, we've had people on here talk about them before, right? Like the new Western gins that can be like floral or fruity or like not really essentially taste of juniper. Mm -hmm. And we've heard opinions, but just in terms of running a bar program, mm -hmm. like how much space realistically do you have to take on those products? Because inherently they can be a little bit more expensive. Totally, yeah. And also maybe very narrow in what you can use them for. Yes, you have to be very selective. And obviously yours, like in space, you don't have enough space, especially in New York City. I mean, you know, we have a very small bar and uh, it's a small space. So, you know, we can only hold a certain amount of products. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to be adventurous. I'm trying to rotate things as much as possible. That's why I also rotate the cocktail, uh, you know, the cocktail softened, you know, the menu. Try to utilize, and you know, to your point, uh, you know, with the modern, you know, cocktails, there's a need for uh, different products. Like a floral gin can work really well, like let's say on a sort of aviation speed, uh, you know, reef, or like you know, some other purposes. So you have to kind of like be open to it, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, indeed. And some of those, I would imagine, are also really good if someone's like, I don't like gin, and you yes. can be like try this because right. it's it's more than vodka but yes. it's not full-on juniper in your face right no that's another consideration exactly and people they have this uh, preconception about gin and the juniper taste mm -hmm. it's just a lot of people that don't like it but if you mix in a cocktail you know then it's okay but if you get something with less juniper then it's more palatable for a lot of people you yeah know? you know what i mean so you have to be kind of open to it and you know playful <laughs> <laughs> it's nice like stepping stone right exactly. a good way to get into yes gin. yes yes indeed well we said it a couple of times perhaps fernet mm -hmm. is the star of the show in this drink yes totally, totally. it's very interesting because we're using a very small amount before we get into it as an ingredient or you know dissecting the profile or whatnot how much do you think that played a role in modern bartenders re-embracing this drink just because of how popular Fernet became and it became, you know, the 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 bartender's handshake That's and the right. industry insider yes. thing. Like, do you think that by merit, by virtue of seeing that ingredient in a recipe, bartenders of the era would have been like, this is something I'm interested in recreating? I think it's possible that uh, basically became popular again because of the handshake, you know. I mean, we all did that as uh, young bartenders was like a rite of passage, you know, <laughs> totally in the end of a shift, you know, sides of Fernet, you know, call Fernet. Uh -huh. uh, and mind you, I love the Fernet Menta as well. That was my choice, mm -hmm. uh, which is a different animal completely, you know. It's, it's, it's but, a wild beast. <laughs> yes, yeah, a wild beast. Um, there is an incredible excitement about bitters for the past few years and it's increasingly so. So Fernet definitely became a very uh, important spirit in a lot of bars. And uh, I love bitters, all kind of bitters. So it's exciting for me because that's my palate. This is what I do. Um, I make bitters and, uh, you know, 
I use a lot of beetles in my cocktail, you know, mm-hmm. you know work my cocktails. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that Fernet kind of really, uh, people pay attention to those classic cocktails that they use Fernet, especially, you know, so early on, you know. It's interesting that um, when you brought Fernet up earlier, yes, and you were talking about, you know, adding it to, to the drink and whatnot, mm-hmm. and then what it would bring, mm-hmm. and you led with saffron. Yes. Which is interesting mm-hmm. because there's a claim out there that's been for many years mm-hmm. that Fernet consumes 70% of the world's supply of saffron. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At Vinepair recently, we tried to dig into this myth and see whether it was true. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a difficult thing for us to kind of get to the bottom of. I won't spoil the uh, the results there. I'll ask people to go mm-hmm. out and search Vinepair and search for that article and read for themselves. I will say it's not something that I first think of mm-hmm. when I drink Fernet. Why does that stand out to you? Or how does that stand out as an ingredient? Is it, had you also heard that claim too? Uh, I hear the claim a while mm-hmm. back, yes. Um, I forgot all about it now, but mm-hmm. um, it's interesting. You know, it's again chemistry. If you have a shot of Fernet, it's kind of like you don't really notice the saffron so much. I mean, you get something there, the earthiness, you know, the dryness. But I think what you taste more is the mint, the kind of eucalyptus thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but when you use a little bit of fernet on a kind of uh, on top of uh, you know of the drink like the hunky punky, for some reason the subtleties in the end kind of come through. So you know then it's, I taste the saffron there. Oh, interesting. You know? Yeah, I think some kind of a chemical sort of thing that happened on mm-hmm. that cocktail and how you know the the those ingredients kind of come through mm-hmm. you know because and 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 i wasn't saying that it was kind of the power of suggestion there yeah. or you know like i'm not trying to i've never been of the opinion like oh we need to call for net out my approach to that statistic was always a that seems fascinating mm-hmm. and b that seems really expensive like for something that you can't always necessarily taste if you're drinking Fernet straight. But I think it's interesting that you mention yeah. bringing out the subtleties. Yes, totally. And sometimes, you know, again, because I make a model, uh, use some ingredients that are expensive and they don't necessarily come through, mm-hmm. but they do come through mm-hmm. in some kind of uh, weird way. And they balance all the other ingredients and somehow, you know, they lift them up, mm-hmm. you know. So it's kind of that sort of thing as well. So we're going to go more deep into the preparation in a minute. So. Sure. Before we do, though, so you mentioned you're using the Fernet almost kind of like as a float or yes. you're adding it? You know, you add it on the cocktail. You know, oh, so you're stirring it so with it. So you're stirring it with it, yes, okay. indeed. You don't tap it, you know, not a float, yeah. So I'm going to tap your expertise here then mm-hmm. for something more hypothetical. So, than I actually saw, I think I saw someone chatting about this on Instagram recently. Yes. And that is cocktails that do require a float. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes they might be, they are ingredients that are going to be pulled from a shelf at room temperature Mm -hmm. rather than from a fridge. Mm -hmm. Is there any way where you can kind of nullify the change in temperature, right? So where, say I have like a room temperature red wine float on top of my New York sour, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I want that. I think I want the red wine to be, or the temperature of the drink to be consistent. Right, right. Do you have any tips for us on that? I think it's better to really... uh, be mindful of the temperature, you know. It's important, especially for a New York sour, as you mentioned. You know, I think it would be nice to have, like, you know, something that's slightly chill. Yeah. You know, and we do that, actually, at the bar, you know, for that reason. 
Uh, so so what, you have like the the wine, you know you're yes, going to use it on the cocktail. Exactly, yeah. yeah. We, we have like this Rioja that we use actually, which is kind of uh, medium hue, like medium light Rioja, and it works really wonderful with uh, New York Sour. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important, yes. Obviously, you don't have to worry about the uh, artwork, like, you know, a, a smoky scotch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, like you're That's making fine. a penicillin if or something. If you're making a penicillin, exactly, you know. Uh, you know, a lot of people use it for different things now, but um, yeah, totally. I mean, it's important. So it's like menu planning then. Mm-hmm. Like if you put something on the menu that has a flow. Yes. Also in terms of, you know, a lot of people asking for classic actors. You go to a mixology place, so you have to be prepared to you know, make New York sours or whatever, you know, a mm-hmm. classic actor at any time. So you always have to be prepared for that mm-hmm. sort of thing because people will ask you for They will, a lot of times, actually, a lot of our uh, guests, they will go for one of our cocktails and then some of them, especially some bartenders, they will try, you know, to to see how you do a classic cocktails. I do that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, Make me the last word after, like, whatever. <laughs> Try one of their drinks. Exactly. And then you go for a classic, right? Because yes. someone's own creation, they've put a lot of work into creating that drink mm-hmm. and perfecting it. Yes. But what do they know of the craft beyond that, right? The classics. Do you, of your bartenders, this is a tangent, but something that always fascinates me. Yes. Folks working for you, is there a set number of classics that they have to know or do you have like a handbook when they're coming in or is that more just a kind of um, technique thing where you're like, you know how to make the classics and if you can look up the recipe, I'm confident you'll be able to make it? Uh, we do have a handbook. You have a handbook? Of the classics because occasionally we twist the classics a little bit. We use like, especially with sugar, we play with sugar a lot, which I'll mention that later. Uh, so it's important to follow, you know, uh, so we have, uh, you know, about 50 classic actors that they have to kind of look before mm-hmm. they start working there. You know, I always ask them to take bar smart in case that, you know, especially the, you know, the assistant bartenders, they want to learn to, you know, learn, you know, mm-hmm. the basics and the classics and all that stuff. So it's That's something yeah. I find, f- I find that fascinating, the, the handbook and the mm-hmm. kind of studying up on that. Yes. We didn't have anything like that. In the kitchen, when I worked in my kitchen days, because obviously it's slightly different, you you don't often get guests asking for things off menu that are classics, right? <laughs> um, That's right, yeah. we did get a lot of experience of where you'd have chefs come in and they'd start to say, well, this is how we did it at my other place. And that can become frustrating a little bit where you're like, okay, well, that's great, but you don't work there anymore. You work here. And I can imagine that with like the classics. If you have three bartenders and they have three different interpretations of the Manhattan, right? right. which is Sugar Monk's Manhattan. It's important to unify that. Yeah, indeed. Mm-hmm. So that's why I wear them to go through our handbook, mm-hmm. which I dictate to some degree mm-hmm. and the head bartender uh, and uh, follow our recipe. You know, it's important. Fantastic. And our preparation. So um, it's a bit tricky. I mean, it takes a little time for people to kind of forget about the old ways, especially in a rush kind of like uh, time behind the bar, you know. But uh, it's, uh, you know, it's perfect. You try, but at least, you know, mm-hmm. uh, have a good team and they're really willing and very excited to, you know, learn. Yeah. And uh, that's important. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about now the preparation of this drink step by step as if you were making it for us today. Certainly. Let's go with first, if you're if you're comfortable with that, doing the classic version of the drink, if you can talk us through and maybe highlight, yeah, which the the products you'd use, ratios and 
Sure, it's very easy. It's basically one ounce and a half of uh, gin, Londo Dry, as I mentioned, uh, an ounce and a half of sweet vermouth, um, the ones that I mentioned as well before, um, and then uh, two or three dashes of Fernet Branca or like a small teaspoon or bar spoon of Fernet Branca. Um, so you stir that on a mixing glass with ice and then you pour into uh, a cocktail coup. The preferred cocktail coup for us, it's uh, Nick and Nora. It's a classic, looks beautiful. And then uh, as a garnish, we use uh, an orange twist to get some that oil a little bit on top of it that seems to uh, you know finish nicely the cocktail, the drink. So this is the classic uh, hunky-punky. I forgot to mention that also, when I started working like in the uh, 90s in the bars, and uh, I experienced a lot of people making the hunky-punky and they added uh, a little bit of orange juice. Um, again, uh, to take away the heaviness and the brilliance of the Fernet Branca. Mm. So it makes the cocktail look cloudy, but it was kind of always like, wow, why they do that? I don't do that. I don't believe that it's a good thing. But uh, occasionally you see that mm-hmm. in bars, they use a little bit of orange juice. Almost like a blood and sand or something. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Or the, the Bronx. The is, Bronx. Well, the Bronx yeah. has a lot of orange juice. A but, lot of orange know, juice, yeah. This is just a little bit like a teaspoon, like similar huh. amount that you use for the Fernet Branca. So, um, I mean, I don't know. It's just people think that it's, you know, it's better for the palate. But, you know, I just wanted to mention that because I saw that many, many times. I think it's interesting that highlights mm-hmm. that our palates have become better, at, certainly in the US. I don't want to speak for the, the whole world because mm-hmm. I think some nations have always accepted bitter flavors. Right. But we're doing a better job in the US and across in the we UK. Do. We do. I think uh, definitely the sensibilities are going up and mm-hmm. they're getting better. And, uh, you know, especially with bitters. We don't need that orange People juice. People understand more and more the importance of uh, the bitter component of mm-hmm. bitters in general, you know. Um, so it's uh, it's exciting. And yep. then for the Sugar Monk riff there, you mentioned that you'd be using unaged Jennifer instead. Yes. Same so, proportions? Hold up. Same proportions, exactly. The only thing that I add is the orange bitters. And as I mentioned, uh, we make uh, the orange bitters uh, with um, coriander, uh, pergamon oranges, uh, Seville oranges, and sometimes we use, even, we use even like a little bit of Buddha's hand if it's available, and then chilies, either Japanese chilies or Thai, so it, and plus, you know, cinnamon and cloth. So you have a lot of uh, spiciness there. And so we add like two or three drops of uh, our, you know, orange bitters, and uh, again, helps the cocktail because it's a different sort of texture with the Genevieve. Slightly oilier, perhaps you can say, mm-hmm. you know, maltier. But, uh, you know, finish the cocktail nicely and uh, creates a beautiful structure. Do you use your house-made orange bitters for all your cocktails that we have do. orange bitters as well? We Interesting. do, yeah. Is that in your martini? Uh, yes, we use actually, uh, we don't use anything on the martini, but we use on the Manhattan, you know, on bitters. And uh, we have a whole line. We have about 20 different types. So, yeah. Making those in-house? Yes. Wow. In the basement. In the, you know, you mentioned earlier not having a lot of space, but still enough space for the bitters. Well, that's important. Very nice. <laughs> we're super excited now because we're expanding. Tell us about this. Yeah, Industry City. Industry City. Yeah, we're super excited about that. We're opening uh, basically another bar, uh, Bitter Monk. So we have Sugar in uh, Monk in Harlem and Bitter Monk in Brooklyn. 
and then a lab, um, a production lab to be able to make our Mari and our herbal liqueurs that we've been making and the bitters and the mixology products. Wow. So it's uh, just next to it. So it's uh, coming up. I think we're going to be able to open the bar in about two weeks. Wow. And um, slowly we're going to go to the production after mm-hmm. we get uh, you know all the recipes mm-hmm. approved from the FDA, which is kind of a big challenge. Yeah. <laughs> Especially for the ingredients <laughs> that we use. <laughs> Congratulations uh, on you. that, though. And thank I'm, you. I'm sure many people listening will be familiar with Industry City, too, with that now being, for the past two years, the home of BCB. That's right. Bartenders flock there, so... No, it's exciting. It's a great community of distillers there. Actually, we're on the distillery role building. It's number six. Nice. So we are next to Fort Hamilton, uh, Korea. It's underneath the Saki Place, uh, you know, Barrow um, Ginger. And, uh, you know, it's it's a great, uh, you mm-hmm. know, community. Nice. So I'm uh, very excited. Yeah. Exciting times. Yeah, yeah. Well, Hectoras, any final thoughts today on the hanky-panky before we move into our five weekly questions? Absolutely. Um, so as I say, it's important to really uh, be very particular about your two ingredients. I mean, you can play even with a Fernet Branca. Occasionally you can even use uh, Fernet Menta, which is you know, fun as well. So... It's a very simple drink, but it's uh, so elegant and can really go off balance very quickly if you use something that is not really up to par. So you expect crispiness, you expect clarity from the cocktail, and obviously, you know, uh, a little bit of bitterness in the end and uh, the subtle notes of saffron and, uh, you know, mint, Mm -hmm. you know. I think it's really, uh, it's an important cocktail and it's a great cocktail and... um, you know, it's uh, wonderful to mm-hmm. to drink that. I don't know. So, Fantastic. Um, other than that, um, it's uh, you know, it, I'm so so excited about the um, that uh, people are looking at the old classics again. I mean, really, you know, uh, mm-hmm. so perfect. Yeah, it does feel like a great moment that we're in right now for those classics. And totally. Yeah. Martini mania and and everything else that comes in exactly. between. Martini mania. Yeah. Indeed. It's <laughs> <Exactly>. insane. <laughs> All right, then let's do it. Let's kick off our weekly questions to finish the show and this week's episode, starting with question number one. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? Uh, I would say Amari, (laughs) followed by Agave spirits, I would say, you know. Um, So I love uh, those Italian uh, herbal construction, uh, you know, bitter spirits. And we have the whole spectrum there, you know. Uh, we uh, have probably about 20, 25 bottles of Amari. Um, you know, light, medium, Carcioffo, Rubabarno, which is, you know, Rubab, mm-hmm. Alpine Amaros, and obviously Fernet, you know, nice. different kinds of Fernet as well. And then, uh, you know, we have also a nice selection of agave spirits uh, and unusual ones like Sotol and Resilla, besides the Mezcal and the Tequila. Yeah. Uh, Bacanora, and you know those are really uh, great spirits to play with. Mm-hmm. So, Bacanora, it's, yeah. yeah, I love I love exploring these alternative agave spirits. It's totally. a wonderful world. Out no, there. absolutely. And yeah. again, you know, um, the a lot of those completely unknown people asking why, where is Tresilla? And it's mm-hmm. kind of fun to really, you know, mm-hmm. have something like that on a cocktail, and yeah. people discover, you know, the wonderful notes. And it's a great moment. Yeah. All right. Question number two for you. Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? 
Um, that's an interesting question. I will go with an ingredient, and that's sugar. Uh, it's just an important ingredient, and uh, I don't think a lot of people pay attention to it as much as they should. It's important to use a good quality sugar, and also it's important to, uh, let's say, when you make a simple syrup, perhaps to play with the texture a little bit by adding maybe gamma arabic, even masticha, which is similar, Ooh, you know. Great you know, Greek powder. ingredient there. Yes, exactly. It's the texture, the, you know, which is, you know, you need that silky and really makes a difference in your palate. And also, again, it's important to use like, um, uh, you know, natural and minimally refined uh, sugar like, uh, you know, Dimirara, Turbinado, Moscovato. Uh, they bring different notes uh, and invaluable flavors to the texture of the cocktail. So I think we should uh, definitely, I mean, you know, we... I'm a stickler. I mean, I use a lot of different types, and obviously, you know, we make a lot of different syrups with different flavors to enhance the flavors mm -hmm. and the texture of the cocktail. So. Should have been somewhat expected as the, you know, coming from sugar monk that that might be. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you what. Good point. <laughs> you're definitely the first guest who's had that answer. And I 100% agree just as a spectator here that mm -hmm. we really don't place enough importance on the sugar that we use or what we're using to sweeten things yes, right and yes. there is this sometimes a notion that like sugar oh no you know like it's terrible for us or like that no one wants to use it but it's an incredible ingredient and when used in the right way totally and so important such an important ingredient mm -hmm. you know every cocktail has sugar a sugar component so uh, I think it's important to make the best of it, obviously mm -hmm. the quality, but also, you know, you want to really maximize, you know, the texture, mm -hmm. which is so important, you know, because nice. you feel it in your palate. That's mm -hmm. like so, you know. That's anyway. something, yeah. Yeah. All right, question number three for you. Of course. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? So that's a great one. Um, I kind of like, Sort of, I'm self-taught, and uh, you know, I was a young kid when I came from Greece. I started working in bars and restaurants, and kind of, I found my own way in some ways. And I always had tremendous security about my methods, the way that I worked, uh, you know, in my head, creating cocktails and all that. One of my uh, mentors, I consider him a mentor, was Gus Regan. Uh, he's been, uh, he was a great friend. And also, he was a big supporter of my work. He, you know, wrote things about me, and he, you know, pushed me, and uh, he helped me a great deal, even opening Sugar Monk before he died. So I made this cocktail once uh, for a famous gallery in Chelsea. It was the Inaccurate Cocktail, and it was a very conceptual, this conceptual-based gallery um, called Sean Kelly Gallery, and he's a good friend of mine. And... Um, you know, I work with, uh, he's actually a big collector of uh, Joseph Boy's work, which is a German, you know, um, conceptual artist. Uh, he was, he's dead now. And I work kind of, I was inspired by his style of work and all that. So Gus uh, Regan, um, he loved the cocktail and he wrote a big piece about it. And uh, in the process, he was asking me, you know, he, we had a conversation and he said, so what inspires you? How do you go about it? What's your process exactly? And I said, I don't know. I start with an idea. Uh, it's very strange. I start with a title of a song or a music title or like a name of a person or an artwork. And I said, you know, I, you know, then I built around, you know, 
But it's, it's, it's uh, you know, I'm, I'm really sad to say that because it's completely unorthodox and weird. You know, a lot of bartenders go and pick up a spirit and then try to pay with other things, and that's high work. And he said, wow, this is amazing. You should be, like, so proud. You have a concept, he says. You have a concept. The concept is the most important thing. It doesn't matter the execution. The concept, it's the beginning of everything. You have an idea and you can build a bar and he says, you don't have, you know, you shouldn't be afraid to fail or like, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect, but you have the core, you have the the core idea. And he gave me courage and that kind of like stuck with me and he kind of solidified my notion of, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I always work that way and since then I continue working that way. Uh, so it's important to, that was great advice. You know, it really made a difference for me because I was such an insecure, you know, guy and, you know, about the, the whole thing. And mm-hmm. so that's, uh, that's my thing. And I miss uh, Gas. I mean, he was uh, an amazing uh, mm-hmm. person. and um, yeah. Certainly someone who's come up a few times yes. in this, in this I'm advice. Sure, I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm um, sure he's a hero for a lot of people, you mm-hmm. know, uh, a great mentor for a lot of people. So mm-hmm. Great advice there. And yeah, I, I love your point about, you know, doesn't have to be perfect. Don't be afraid to fail. Yes, exactly. But, but having the concept. Have the concept, have the idea mm-hmm. that angers you, you know, completely. Mm-hmm. Not and, just for the sake of it. Yes, indeed. And, you know, even for the, I was listening the other day, uh, the other day, you know, a while ago, a piece by Hector Bellios, The Death of Cleopatra, it's a cantata. And uh, the title was like so amazing. And of course, the music's amazing. So I thought, well, I have to create an amaro. <laughs> 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 about the death of Cleopatra. Just the name, it's a soul. <laughs> I love it. I love uh, it. Funny. All right, penultimate question for you here today. Yes. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? Well, this is a hypothetical question. I will answer with a hypothetical, uh, you know, answer as well. Um, it's a memory. So it's a utopia. Uh, when I was, I think, 17, um, I went to the first kind of cocktail bar in my life in Athens and kind of blow me away. I was like this dark space with candlelight and everywhere and beautiful cocktails, I thought, like st- and stunning looking people. Um, so that made such an impression on me, kind of really was like, wow, you know, what a place. So the name was Aerostato. It was in Athens, uh, in a kind of uh, the bohemian part of Athens where you have like, you know, a lot of artists living and, you know, that sort of thing. So you have a lot of creatives that will go to that bar. And um, Aerostato means uh, an air balloon in uh, in English. And it was very popular for many, many years. So I revisited it many, many times after that, you know, it was, uh, you know, after school, you know, I would go with my classmates and we hang out and talk about, you know, different things art mainly, but it was such an incredible place. It doesn't exist anymore, obviously. But if I had a chance to go back, I will. <laughs> and I heard my first cocktail there, which is funny enough, was an Irish coffee. An Irish coffee. And I thought it was the most beautiful cocktail <laughs> in the world. I was standing with the foam and, you know, the beans and the green mint on top of it. I was blown away. Wow. So that's such a such an amazing fun memory. That's a great cocktail but memory. But it is a utopia. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Funny. All right, final question for us to wrap up here today. Yes. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Wow. Again, that's an amazing question. Um well, I love two things. I love uh, mezcal and I love amaro. So I will go perhaps with uh, a mezcal sort of black Manhattan reef. Um, 
Spirit Forward, a good mezcal, perhaps Tobala, my favor. A great Amaro, perhaps I will make that Amaro. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I will add maybe like a teaspoon, like Cabernet of um, Cumel liqueur. I love Cumel. Mm -hmm. Stir it up, drink it, and uh, cheers. And it's been a good journey. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you're making this one for yourself too. You know, not yes. everyone stipulates that. I like when people are, you know, yes. what? Being present, being in the moment, savoring exactly. that aspect of making it. I don't know. I mean, you know, perhaps I will know when I'm going to die, when I'm <laughs> near death. So I'll have a chance to really steer something up quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you never know. Handy. You can be like, uh, you know, somewhere in a bar and mm. drop dead. But, you know. <laughs> I'm touching wood here. Here's hoping not, yes, you know. of course, um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but Hector Thank you so much for joining us today. It's Thank been you, an team. absolute pleasure. And what a wonderful drink. Likewise. Just that's just the hanky panky, you know. It it's is been indeed, the hanky panky. Yes. <laughs> the hanky panky. Thanks for having me, team. It was really uh, wonderful. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Cocktail College podcast. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seasai, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Greenberg. Who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>